This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. And now at last, it is my pleasure to introduce our esteemed speaker, Dr. Sarah Thomas, the university librarian and vice president for the Harvard Library. In the library world, Sarah Thomas needs no introduction. I'm sure you all know about Harvard and Oxford, the world-renowned historic universities that Sarah has been and continues to be affiliated with. So I will say no more about them and dwell instead somewhat longer on my longtime colleague and dear friend. Harvard's former university librarian, historian Robert Darnton, made a marvelous comment about Sarah when her new appointment at Harvard was announced a couple of years ago, a comment that not only captures my own sentiments about Sarah, but that says a lot about her own insight and talent. Bob said, if we conducted a search throughout this world and far off into the galaxy where alien librarians may be charting new paths through cyberspace, Sarah Thomas would be at the top of the list. <laughs> Having established a reputation as a superb university librarian at Cornell, she did wonders at Oxford, whose library system is both fabulously rich and bewilderingly baroque. She will be even more wonderful at Harvard. And indeed, she has been. Not content to rest on her laurels as the first woman the first non-British citizen to have held the venerated Bodley's librarian position in Oxford's more than 400-year history, Sarah has taken Harvard by storm, challenging them to build on their storied reputation and show 21st century leadership. She has done so, moreover, with grace, charm, and wit, all of which were already on abundant display in the chronicle of her experiences as, a lead, as the leader of the Bod Squad in the book Transforming the Bodleian, published in 2012. Tonight, Sarah will talk to us about how the brave new library of today must look to both the past and the future in meeting the diverse needs of today's library users, research, teaching, and learning needs, as well as technological, social, and cultural needs, and I'm hoping that perhaps during the Q&A following her talk, she might also share an interesting and entertaining tidbit or two about the Bod Squad and the bewilderingly Baroque world in the stacks at Harvard. Please join me in welcoming Sarah Thomas. Well, hello. I'm Sarah Thomas, space alien. <laughs> It's, it's uh, wonderful to be here tonight. As I've said to many people already, um, it's a great privilege to be here. Brian is someone who means a great deal to me. I worked with Brian many years ago. Uh, he served on a committee when I was at the Library of Congress uh, to uh, unite cataloging across the United States, and Brian was in charge of a group whose motto was, more better, faster, cheaper. And he was so cool, and he, he continues to be that way, and I would do anything Brian ever asked me to do, so he's, he's wonderful. 
So um, there is a subversive act that is altering the way Harvard students will view libraries. About a year ago, in October, I got an email from the lead professor of Harvard's most popular course, CS50, it's Introductory Computer Science. They teach almost 850 students in a semester in this course. And Professor David Mallon was looking for a generous space in which to hold CS50 office hours, in which the students gather in the evening with their tutors to go over problem sets. And he wrote to me, he thought that the Widener Libraries, I don't know if you've ever seen Widener Library, but 12 giant columns, steps going up, very awe-inspiring. He thought that the Beaux-Arts reading room in the library might be just the spot, very inspiring and capacious. I thought I might be lynched. (laughs) Widener has been sacred space for humanities scholars and students. Among undergraduates, it's what separates the sheep from the goats, road scholars from partiers. Um, I tried to distract David. I had him come over. I tried to distract him. I showed him some other very nice rooms. But he's pretty skilled as a negotiator. He said, well, Sarah, when does Widener close? I said, well, 10 o'clock at night. He said, oh, my students are just getting started then. And so we're now open uh, in the semester. Uh, for um, The students come in at 9, and we close at 12. We had 100 students on Tuesday. We expect the number to rise up to 250 um, by, the, by Thanksgiving when CS50 is ending its tutorials. And I figure that at the end of the semester, I will have introduced another 850 students to the glories of Widener Library. They had never come into such a space, which can be with its marble lobby, and it's, uh, it's a very austere building. It can be rather intimidating. So we've used this as an opportunity to do a few things. One, we've developed um, a relationship with the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, uh, where, honestly, the faculty there and the students think libraries don't exist. They use everything online, and uh, we're we're totally irrelevant for them. Uh, We've sent a message out to a large part of Harvard students' bodies that we are open and welcoming. We're improving services for the whole community by extending hours. Uh, We have other libraries that are open later hours, but this is the main um, humanities and social science library that closed at 10. Our grad students really wanted it to be open later, and so it's been the tipping point. And then we're able to expose people to something that is... um, not familiar to them. These 19-year-olds, these 18-year-olds coming in, as you go up the steps to the reading room, on the mezzanine level, there is a Gutenberg Bible. And I hope 
to have my curators lie in wait for them and, and get them to find out what a, what a really important book is. And actually, the idea has proven contagious. I was speaking at the Mellon Foundation. The head of the Mellon Foundation board is a head of the Center for Ethics at Harvard. And uh, suddenly she said to me, oh, I'd like to do that. I'd like to have my office hours in Widener, too, in the main reading room. And I said, uh, late at night, right? Because <laughs> we don't want to have it uh, competing with anything else. But, uh, you know, I can see that there's a change in the, in the library, and we're really transforming. There's a kind of buzz about them that belies the headlines. You know, we all see these headlines, the deserted library. Um, I was looking at one the other day, and it said, you know, our libraries, the dinosaurs of the digital age. And um, in The Guardian, you can see headlines that say, uh, why don't we just close all the libraries and give everyone a Kindle? Um, so I think we, we, need, we really need to uh, express the value of libraries. So it is true that people love the ease and convenience of the digital, and we see a tremendous surge in the use of online resources. And with the shift to electronic, there's a reconfiguration of the spaces and the services in libraries. More and more libraries are transferring materials off-site uh, if they have a digital twin. So you can use the digital to access something. If you really need the, the print, it can be delivered to you. That frees up this kind of wonderful space in the heart of campus for engagement with people. Now let me tell you another story about how libraries are, are changing. In the 800th year of the foundation of the uh, rule of law, when King George, okay, King George, King John first issued Magna Carta in 1215, I want to take you back eight years to 2007 when Ross Perot was selling his engrossment, the only U.S. pre-statute that's uh, um, pre-1300 engrossment of Magna Carta. I got a call from Sotheby's vice chairman, David Redden. Uh, Sotheby's was selling this, auctioning this, and they wanted to photograph the Bodleian's Magna Carta. And I said, well, yes, David, we have two. You know, I'd only been there a couple of months. I was very excited. And he said, no, David. David said, no, Sarah, you have four. You have four. And his researcher had had all four of them out on a reading, in a reading room table, the value estimated at $75 million. And uh, when I asked my curator about the discrepancy in the numbers, he said, in a kind of deprecating way, oh, we have a lot of medieval charters. And, <laughs> and I think uh, that's one of the differences between the UK and the U.S., right? <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so the Bodleian put all four of them on display uh, in December of 2007, riding on the coattails of Sotheby's publicity. And uh, w the Guardian headline for that was, Crowds Cue to Look at Grubby Magna Carta. <laughs> 
a thousand people came on a single day. We, we had very little notice. A thousand people came. And I remember this old man coming with two walking sticks. And he was very determined. He wasn't going to miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, Ross Perot's copy sold for $20 million to David Rubenstein, who left it in the National Archives where it had been. So emboldened by success, we contrived to bring Magna Carta to an Oxford event in New York City with a boarding pass for Ms. Carta, uh, who flew virgin upper class in her own seat, belted in in a little suitcase. Uh, she arrived in New York. She had multiple adventures and then was marooned by the eruption of a volcano in Iceland. And my colleague, Richard Ovenden, the keeper of special collections, said, well, Sarah, I understand we can still get planes to Madrid, and then we'll go overland to France, and then we'll take the ferry over to Dover, and then we can take the train back to Oxford. I said, Richard, it's the Magna Carta. You know, think again. And so he came up with an idea to have it go to the Morgan Library. They cleared the Morgan Library uh, to exhibit Magna Carta. It had a full-page coverage in the uh, Saturday New York Times weekend arts section. And um, we, were, we were really on a roll, basically, uh, having this experience of exposing our materials to a hungry public. So next, Erwin Jacobs and Qualcomm sponsored a West Coast tour. I thought it was a little bit like Pearl Jam, and I had T-shirts made up. Um, one Sunday, I found myself at the Salk Institute, where we had extra sessions laid on for staff who wanted to see it. People brought their babies. People brought their grandmothers. And... I got kind of bored, actually, with these you know, small groups of people. I was saying the same thing over and over again with my curators. So I started asking them, what does Magna Carta mean to you? And one of the most humbling and moving experiences of my life was to have a parking lot attendant give an eloquent and really emotional speech about the meaning of democracy and law. It gave purpose and meaning to being a librarian. We are preservers of the written record of our civilization. We have a mission to make knowledge accessible to society, to advance creation of new knowledge, and to secure the foundation for an enlightened world. So these experiences translated into an expanded mission for the library. At the Bodleian, we had a 1930s building designed with a very utilitarian purpose, holding the Bob's book collections and special collections. For those of you who know, it's the, new Bod, the so-called New Bod, Bodleian Library I'm talking about. But the stacks, where we had some of our rare collections, had sewage pipes going through them. And they were constructed in that sort of way where there's ventilation up through the floors. So if you had a fire, hundreds of years of collecting would be incinerated in, in minutes. So 
we needed to move the collections out of there. There was a very brilliant architect who took this building. He very discreetly called it a shy building. Really, it was um, it was quite closed. Uh, and we moved the the books either to a repository outside of Oxford or actually into OpenStax. And we transformed this library into a civic and cultural space for the public and into a paradise for scholars. They had, the scholars had reading rooms and seminars where you could teach using special collections and digital media studios. And at the ground level, um, we had uh, the windows along Broad Street, which always had their blinds pulled in the most maddening way, were recast as portals to a hall that then occupied the space where the, the book stacks had been removed. And it's an immense gathering space with a cafe, with two exhibition galleries, a printing press, an auditorium for readings and other cultural events. And uh, I was able to go to the opening at the end of March this year. Since that time, uh, until now, 350,000 people have come to visit. And uh, the Hamlin Treasury exhibits one of the four Magna Cartas on a rolling basis. And in eight years, then, more people have seen and have learned about Magna Carta than in the previous eight centuries. It's really a remarkable experience. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, one of the most uh, common misconceptions, though, about libraries is that everything is digitized. So I've just been talking about things that aren't digitized, but really often when I'm out in the world and I meet people, they ask me what percentage of your library is digitized, and I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say that it's, a, it's, a, it's in a single-digit uh, number. And, and there are estimated still 100 million volumes in the world awaiting digitization, um, possibly as part of the Google Book Project, and there are millions of handwritten letters, field notes, from scientific explorations, lab reports from Nobel scientists, um, onion skin and carbon copies from business uh, history, maps detailing the positions of uh, soldiers in World War I. All of these things are hidden collections that are prime candidates for digitization. But the scale of what needs to be done is absolutely staggering. Uh, for example, the Northeast Documentation uh, Conservation Center uh, near us in Massachusetts has been working on a way to digitally remaster analog recordings, and it estimates that it can save an endangered recording for about $120. Actually, I mean, that's quite affordable. That's within reach for people. Uh, Harvard's poetry collection has um, original and unique Recordings of some of the greatest poets in uh, in the world, and so we have Robert Frost or T. S. Eliot or Marianne Moore. Uh, these these uh, voices haven't been heard for decades because the disc, the recording, is delaminating, and now they've developed this procedure to be able to read this and and hear it uh, after all this time, but. I mean, so to do our poetry collection might be 100,000, but the estimate 
is that for all the recordings across the United States of spoken word and other types of recordings like that would be $9 billion. So you can see that it isn't going to be any time soon that everything is going to be digitized. Um, well, part of the future of libraries, then, is to raise awareness and resources to preserve these fragile remnants of history and culture, and for us to collaborate with others, including museums and archives, to make the master record of humanity available for discovery and exploration. The contribution to the public good through digitization is occurring at an accelerating pace. And with new technology enabling faster and cheaper conversion and new methods of scholarship illuminating our understanding, we can expect this to be a much larger part of the library's future. But again, you know, first everybody asks me if everything is digitized. And the next appalling question that I often get asked is, do you toss things out once you've digitized them? Oh, yes, you know, Emily Dickinson's poem. Yeah, we don't need that. Um, um, and so, uh, you know, you think about the power of the artifact, whether it's Anne Frank's diary or um, we had at the Bodleian Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You know, she wrote it as a teenager during another volcanic eruption when Europe was dark and they were off in Switzerland. And it has the crossouts of Percy Shelley. And I mean, how you couldn't miss something like that. Uh, you really need to be able to see that in its, in its original form. But, uh, so even in the digital age, attraction of, of the authentic seems to be very potent, as we've seen from the Magna Carta example. And there's a boom in teaching uh, with original documents. Our students are becoming, our students all over, are becoming more distant from handwritten letters. Uh, I did hear that the paper industry is starting a multi-million dollar campaign to encourage people to write handwritten letters to uh, soldiers overseas or to their parents. But our students, when was the last time they even wrote a little three-line thank you letter to uh, someone who gave them a gift? No. And they don't know about printed newspapers. They don't read, they read online. And uh, paper maps, you know, everyone uses Google Maps or some other substitute. So the Harvard historian and, and uh, New Yorker author Jill Lepore is uh, teaching students in her freshman seminar, uh, which is on the election of 1800. And they use newspapers, pamphlets, and correspondence from 1799 to 1800 to explore regional differences and attitudes towards the candidates who were Thomas Jefferson, who was the vice president, and John Adams, uh, who was the president. Uh, and you all know who won, right? And uh, she juxtaposes this his historic election against the current political scene. So she takes students to museums, she takes them to archives, she takes them to cemeteries, and creates that hands-on experience of discovery and connecting learning to life. They see an 18th century printing press in action. They use quill pens and write on parchment by candlelight. 
and she team teaches, so she has an interplay with another expert and can learn from them. And she's engaged in interdisciplinary work, and she describes her work as argument through evidence. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking this is really a lot of what we're doing in libraries now. We are working um, in partnership with faculty, in partnership with students. Um, when we talk about active learning centers and um, maker spaces, it's that experience that people have by learning, by doing, and really understanding, getting us away from just the two-dimensionality sometimes that occurs when we're reading uh, online. Uh, one of the fastest uh, growth, growing activities in libraries is teaching classes inside of, of libraries. Uh, there might be sessions in which a student has a medieval manuscript at his or her place, and a special camera allows you to zoom in uh, to allow people to see certain features. Or it might be a class on a database or some other aspect of information literacy. And I think students are more likely to be, they're involved in uh, multimedia projects and they're often group works. Uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Toni Morrison, and she was talking about the ambition of her generation to write the great American novel. And somewhat mournfully, she said, it was about 15 years ago, students today, they want to make the great American film. But I think students today want to develop the killer app. They want to be like Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, so, you know, we, we have to think about how that, how that works for students. I hope that those students who want to develop the killer app will be those CS students up in my reading room and that they'll have a hackathon about how to improve services in the library. So that, you know, it, it's, all is not lost. So when I was in college, using a typewriter was a very big technological advance. Um, today, people are very proficient in producing YouTube videos. There's a digital media studio, courtesy of philanthropist uh, Gus and Rita Hauser, on the ground level of Widener Library, which produces high-end contributions for MOOCs. And we're keen to construct one-button studios, which are the easy version for the novice or low-budget producer. You just stick a flash drive in, push the button, and record. And more and more libraries are developing spaces after you've produced your uh, report or your presentation. They have a practice room where you can practice delivering it, and they have presentation rooms where you can actually give this to uh, your peers and be critiqued. Uh, librarians are also involved in the production of scholarships, serving as publishers and disseminators of knowledge, using the democratic um, power of the web to promote the intellectual contributions of researchers. We operate online uh, institutional repositories, which are really fantastic for reaching the intellectually curious around the world. Uh, and we are accelerating through making our faculty scholarship available, their research available. We're accelerating the creation of new knowledge. Uh, another focus in the libraries, another new focus, is research data management. Uh, 
Uh, more data than ever is being produced. Um, you may have uh, read a couple of years ago that Forbes article, which was, um, is data the new oil? Uh, of course, that was back when oil was $100 a barrel. Uh, but at any rate, it's uh, data is definitely something that people are, are paying a lot of attention to. And funding agencies are mandating that people who receive funding from them uh, place their data in a repository where it can be made available both to reproduce their studies so that you can really test the efficacy of their of their work or for others to be able to use that data without having to spend the money to uh, to recreate it enter the librarian uh, who has a better reputation for keeping artifacts for generations who might one trust to maintain the integrity and the authenticity of data and who has a culture of openness and accessibility. Data is increasing in importance as a product in its own right, and we can expect academic credit to be given uh, just for the production of data or for the software that's used to manipulate it. So when researchers are applying for grants, uh, they have to prepare these data management plans. It isn't quite as bad as doing your taxes, but we know that our researchers uh, just want to do research. They don't want to be doing that kind of paperwork. So enter the librarian. But it's not just that we're the handmaidens of the researchers, but it's actually a covert action to gain advanced knowledge of data that's going to be created. And we can insert ourselves helpfully into the process, meaning that we can actually contribute to the attributes of the data that will make it retrievable and ensure that it's going to be stored efficiently and securely. And along the way, we're building relationships with people who have begun to think we were irrelevant because we were invisible to them. So the ability to archive the world's knowledge is one of the most important and enduring characteristics of libraries. Only today, it's accomplished in a networked fashion rather uh, than in an archipelago of um, isolated institutions. Partnerships with libraries and museums and archives and on a local, regional, national, and international level are building um, seamless networks of expertise and experience. So what is it we think about the future of libraries? So we're, we're transforming from storehouses of books to centers of active learning. We have an increasingly important role as intellectual and social and community hubs in campuses and in communities. And libraries will be developing virtual and physical spaces to connect readers with information. Today, it's about connections, not just about collections. And we know that we want our libraries to be welcoming and open and friendly to people. We want uh, our, to expand our audience to the broader community and share information on a global scale through a multitude of partners. And libraries, like the Gazelle Library, are developing a local presence as a leader in fostering creativity and sparking the imagination. So when I was a kid, 
we were having these very powerful images of westward expansion. There were cowboys and Indians and space exploration. That was my my childhood. I had this moment where I was feeling sort of um, sad that everything had been discovered, you know. And, And then I realized that I was living in possibly the most exciting time, which is this information age and that the library is at the very heart of it. The possibilities for reimagining libraries are really endless. They're, they're very exciting times, and I know that just because you are here tonight that you really care about libraries, and you want to be part of this transformation too. On behalf of it, well, in this transformation, I do want to say this, because it blends the best of the past with the promise of the future. And on behalf of all librarians, I want to thank you for your benevolence. You provide the zip and the pizzazz and the ability to innovate, preserve, and share. You change the world for students, for faculty, and for the public good. In our world, you friends of the library, you're our heroes. Thank you very much. I can see a gentleman over here. Last time I was in Cambridge, Mm -hmm. I could not get inside of the Widener Library. That was before we were open and welcoming, right? Well, it sounds as though there has been a real revolution, and that would be wonderful not to be able to see the Widener treasures is tragic. Thank you. Thank you. I agree wholeheartedly. And although I do have to confess I still see visitors come up the steps press their nose against the glass. Some of them penetrate through the inner doors of the vestibule, and then they're turned away by our doorkeepers, as you probably were. Um, But more and more, we are opening the library to to visitors. I did, this is the hundredth year of Widener being built. It it was opened in in, um, 1915, and I had a birthday party to which 1,500 people streamed in. We had a jazz band, and I, and I don't sing, Jonathan, I led them in singing Happy Birthday. So next time you come, Dr. Carson, we'll make sure the doors will be open for you. (laughs) The always did a nice job of letting you in. Yes, the Houghton is a, I mean, we have an embarrassment of riches at Harvard, and the Houghton Library is the, uh, a, a rare books library next to Widener. And I see these visitors being turned away from coming into Widener, and I know actually Houghton is open, but they keep it as a little secret because they don't want to be overwhelmed. And you, so you, that goes back to this Magna Carta story, because I'm obsessed with how is it that I can change this closed and restricting environment into one that's going to share this great 
wealth of, of knowledge, these fabulous collections with others. Because isn't it a shame to have them locked up there and only enjoyed by a very few people? So there has to be some way to break through in our environments to allow people to come in and at the same time to provide the protection that you need. And that's the balance I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. If anyone else is raising your hand, I can't see. So I think <laughs> I might have to say thank you very much. And uh, um, it's a pleasure to have been here. Thank you. Thank you.